seated. How many of you um, have ever known a know-it-all, right? You don't look at me like that. How many of you have ever known another know-it-all? Have you ever seen that? You're pointing to your brothers. Excellent. Those people who just, they've always got the 10% better story than your own. You know, they always have something to add. Oh, yeah, but, or that's nothing. And then they share their own story. Um, ready at a second's notice to tell you all their accomplishments and how great they are. We, we call that in our culture, we call that being egotistical. And in the ancient culture and in the Bible, when we hear that spoken of, the word we hear is pride or people being prideful. If we think back across uh, the scriptures teaching from beginning to end, we hear that there are these three great ruins of humanity, these, these great sin roots. And it's the, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are those things we, we want what we see. We want the things that make us happy and feel good and give us satisfaction. And we want the things that elevate ourselves that are prideful. We think more of ourselves than we should and less of others. We think of ourselves first and we think we're probably a little better, a little smarter, a little better looking and more the ideal person than the other folks around us. Now, without raising hands, of course, has that ever been you? Or maybe the person you're married to, or, or maybe your neighbor. We understand that for human beings, pride and ego are a natural sin that we have to constantly be on the lookout for. The good news is that uh, outside of some circles in our culture right now, egotism and pridefulness is something that America looks down on. We generally look at egotistical, know-it-all, show-off, I'm the center of attention all the time, constantly love me, love me, love me, here's how great I am, people. We look at that in the negative. Would you be surprised to know, however, that in Paul's day, in the 50 AD culture of Corinth, quite the opposite was true. In fact, the people who excuse me, were the most braggadocious, the most self-centered, the, the, the most ready to tell every one of their accolades and how great they were, the most pompous, they were seen as more important and more special in society. And, and it would be right to tell everybody how wonderful you are. In, in fact, they would wear their wealth and their achievement. This is going to play into Corinthians a little bit later on when we talk about head coverings and hairstyles, the way people dressed when they went out into, into culture, into public, and into church, by the way, was a social marker and an identifier. Now, we see little bits of this in fashion in the United States, not so much in Sturgeon Bay, thank goodness, but if you've ever spent any time in a metropolis, you understand that people kind of wear their status in a certain sense. In Paul's day, it was very, very overt, and the wealthy were always talking about themselves and reminding people how special and achieved they were. As Paul comes into Corinth, he's going to demonstrate a very different lifestyle. As Gina was reading a minute ago, you heard these words about, I came to you in humility. You hear Paul saying, um, I didn't want to know anything about you except Christ crucified. I came to you in fear and trembling, not in brilliance and speech or wisdom. His, his, his preaching was not with persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so your faith would be based not on human wisdom, but God's wisdom. 
And so Paul is going to live out a different style. He's going to set an example for the people in Corinth. And because we understand that what was true then is true now, what we understand that was is we know that there's nothing new under the sun. What we need to come to terms with is that the message Paul is giving and the example he is setting for first century Corinth is precisely the same message that we Americans need to hear today, even if we think our culture is more humble than the culture of Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, Paul is going to start to move into the meat of his, uh, of his message. So there's two primary themes we're going to kind of weave through today. Not really points, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really do that. But these are a couple of themes that I hope you see as we, as we work through this. The first one is a question, what are you known for? People who know you, encounter you, work with you, live next to you, married to you, uh, uh, gave birth to you, hang out with you, spend time with you, what are you known for? You ought to be known for who you represent. And then secondly, Paul models that humility is better than persuasive arguments so that God's power is demonstrated through submission rather than through ego. So those are the two kind of themes we're going to weave through today, and, um, and I hope that these points get across. So in... Um, in first century Corinth, there was, a, there was a culture of the sophists. And what I mean by the culture of the sophists, um, there were people, philosophers, speakers, who would go from town to town, uh, auditorium to auditorium. Um, and, and what they would do is they would share kind of their stick, their story, their philosophy, their way of thinking. We don't have a parallel in the United States of America for this. So let me see if I can start to draw some commonalities. How many of you ever, uh, if you're going to go out on a date or go entertain, you, you go to a movie? You ever been, done that? Maybe not right now, but have you ever done that? I need you to be interactive here, so no, we're paying. Okay, there we go. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, how many of you have ever gotten together and gone to a concert? All right. How about to a play? An opera? Okay, thank you for the cultured folks. So, so we, <laughs> from time to time, we go, a, a comedian, how about that? There we go. There, I got the bottom end. Now, so if we're, if we're going out, I'm just kidding. So if we're going out and we're, and we're um, entertaining, we go and we hear things that, that what do they do? They, they entertain our emotions and our senses. They make us laugh. They make us cry. They make us cringe. They make us experience things. That's what, the, what those do. In ancient Greece, this will blow your mind, they did not have electricity. Wild. So how do you have a movie? There's no cameras. So you can't have them? Okay, so we'll take that out. They had plays, but could you do a play every day? No, probably not. Plays took a little more time to put on, but they were good. So we, we do have plays. Comedians, maybe. I don't know that they had a lot. But here's what they did have. They had these sophist philosophers, and they would travel from Athens to Rome uh, to, to different cities, and they would come to Corinth as one of the major stops. And in Corinth, they would stand in these places, these porticos, uh, which were essentially uh, stone cutouts, and you would stand in it, and your voice would be somewhat amplified as you would speak. And out in the, 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 the floor around them and the, in the area around them, these huge um, uh, coliseum-looking areas, uh, your voice would just resonate. And so these sophists, these philosophers, would stand and they would do their speech, their thing, and they were like rock stars. The best of them could make everybody out there feel and think and ponder and question, and they would go home later, and all of the conversations around would be what they heard today, much like after you come hear me speak on Sundays, right? 
No? Okay. So I could hope. So when, when you would come, you would hear these sofas speak, and you would go, and that's what you're talking about at lunch. And when you go to work tomorrow, that's what you're talking with your coworkers about. Hey, man, when Aristotle was talking about that thing, wasn't that amazing? Yeah. Oh, you didn't get to see Aristotle yesterday? Oh, too bad. We're better than you. And so then they would over have this conversation. And then maybe maybe when Socrates would come, he would speak, and, and Atticus would come. This one would speak, and Flaminus would come, and they would hear, and this is what they would talk about. That's how their culture um, was built. That's what they did. Let me share you a couple accounts. Um, this is I'm, I'm going to read from, from a commentary that speaks about these things. And we're talking about the year is about 50 in Corinth, okay? Paul had reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Greeks. Paul, by the way, had come into town. Paul is extremely well-educated, exceedingly well-educated, knows the Scriptures better than most, a Jew among the Jews, a Pharisee among the Pharisees. Paul is remarkably wise and smart in the Scriptures and can make great arguments as we're demonstrated constantly in, in Paul's teaching. And, and writing. But what Paul's doing is he comes first and he just kind of slides into town to speak there in the synagogues with the Jews. In contrast to the sophists and orators who would arrive in a city and follow a set or protocol of heaping praise on the city and its achievements in using such eloquence and superior wisdom, these sophists tried both to win an audience and to draw attention to themselves. For example, uh, Favornius, who visited Corinth probably in the early part of the second century, observed, when I first visited your city the first time and gave your people and magistrates a sample of my great eloquence, I seemed to be on friendly, even intimate terms with you. Diochristostanum addressing the assembly of his own city in Prussia, this is an area in Turkey, observed that in his travels he could visit the greatest cities, including Rome, and that his arrival was escorted with much enthusiasm and accolades, the recipients of my visits being so grateful for my presence and begging me to address them and advise them and flocking about my doors from dawn to evening, all without having me incurred any expense or having made any contribution with the result that all admired me equally. Isn't that great? I've thought about opening the sermons each week with something like that about myself and just bragging a bit and seeing if I get the same response that the sophist did. You think I would? Okay, why is that though? Why is it that we, we hear what the sophist said and, then, and we hear that we think about it in our culture? Why do we recoil to that? Because whether or not we're all cognizant of it, we're building on the equity of Christian humility. Our culture, whether it's ready to admit it, cares about the poor. Our culture cares about equality for people. Our culture seeks to elevate those who are downtrodden and suppressed. Our culture wants to demonstrate things like honesty and humility. We value them at a level, even if we don't always recognize it, because those are Christian values. And when Paul was coming to Rome, I'm sorry, excuse me, to Corinth, I know where I am. When Paul is showing up in Corinth, that's the kind of value he's teaching them. But church, listen, this was a foreign concept to these people in Corinth. They loved arrogant, braggadocious, haughty, cocky, self-ingratiating sophists. They loved it. And that's how they behaved. What? 
Would we in America in any way embrace that? Ah, it turns out we do. It turns out we pretend we don't like it, but then we continue to embrace it. Why? Because we're not fully embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know these people. You know these know-it-alls. And something in us says, eh, eh, something doesn't, there's a discomfort, there's a, I don't quite like it. And what we're needing to understand is that discomfort is the Holy Spirit in you or the influence of the Holy Spirit in our culture saying, that's not God's way for you. Humility is God's way for you. And Paul is teaching this to the people in Corinth. Now, let me shift gears just slightly. Last week, as we talked about identity, I asked you, um, what is it that gives you your sense of personal identity? What is it that if somebody asks about you that folks would say, or more importantly, if you're asked, what gives you your sense of self? How do you define yourself? What is that? And, and the, the, the um, poll that we kind of did here on Facebook and, and social media said, uh, most of you said that my job or my vocation was number one. Family and friends kind of give me my sense of identity and self and social status, or that's cultural relevance or popularity or, or financial, or your beliefs and your values values, political affiliation, appearance, blah, 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 education even. We said, this is what kind of makes me who I am and gives me a sense of self. And I said, those are honest answers. I really appreciate it. However, for Christians, our identity needs to come from Jesus, that who we are is Him. And, and we put that two ways. The first way we said, uh, the identity, my personal identity is not me, but He. What I would hope is that people who come to know me would see Jesus in me. My hope would be that amongst you, when people get to know you at work, at home, in the neighborhood, wherever you encounter, what they would get to know about you is the fact that you're with Jesus, and that is a large part of who you are and can define the way you are likely to behave and respond, right? So not me, but he. That's your personal identity, and then your, com- excuse me, your community or communal, communal identity is not me, but we. Now, when I say we, last week, remember if you were here, I asked you to look around in this room. Just, just kind of do it for a second. Don't lock eyes, that's weird, but, but just kind of look around at people in the room. You, you can see people. You see, there's a lot of, there's some really interesting people in this room, right? There's some really smart people. There's some, there's some wealthier and, and more challenged people. There's some more beautiful and less beautiful people. There's some folks you know and some folks you don't. Some folks look really friendly, you know. Then there's Mike over there, you know, just look kind of scary and intimidating. But here's the thing. We form Jesus' body in, in this city, in this town. We, the other brothers and Christians, uh, brothers and sisters in other Christian churches as well, but we are the body of Jesus Christ. This is who you are. Your allegiance, your faithfulness, your values encompass this. That's who makes you who you are. This is a large family of brothers and sisters. Remember when, when Jesus said that, or when Scripture tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. That ancient word is really saying he's like the older brother, the firstborn of all of us who are the children of God because of him. We're a family of faith. There's a oneness in Christ. So who are you? Where does your identity come from? It comes from your relationship with Jesus and your involvement in relationship with your church family. And part of what we want to do during this 2019 year of belonging at Community Church is help all of us to understand that this is who we belong to and with. This is our sense of belonging. 
that we love one another and we love our community, and this defines who we are. We're going to disagree sometimes, right? Does that ever happen in your home? You ever disagree with your kids or your parents or your spouse? Has that ever happened anywhere else? No? Okay, just me. How about, how about, how about have you ever disagreed in the workplace? No? You guys are amazing. Okay, thank you for your honesty. I so like you right now. So we, we, have on, we disagree with people, but we still love one another because we're we, okay? And we work out our problems. We are headed in the same direction together. We are on a path to be more like Jesus. So where's your identity come from? It comes personally through Jesus and collectively through your church community. That's where identity comes from. Now, for Sturgeon Bay Community Church, there are some things that are distinct to who we are and what we're doing. In other words, our mission and vision and values lead to our goals and our strategies here because we believe that we need to do everything with excellence and to a purpose. And our purpose here is to make Christ followers who are actively seeking to transform our community by loving God and others. You're going to hear that from your staff, your leaders, your pastors, hundreds of times every year. And what we're trying to do is make sure that you're hearing us say, the reason we exist, the reason we worship together, the reason we collect tithes and offerings and put them to work effectively in our community is this. We want to make disciples of Jesus Christ who are actively and intentionally trying to have a transformative effect in the culture of Sturgeon Bay because we are the people of Jesus and we love our community and we love each other and we love people who are like us and unlike us and we want all people to hear the transforming message of the gospel and really mature in that faith. That's disciple making. That's what we're about. We believe in being culturally relevant. We believe in being relational. Uh, we believe, actually I have a slide for all this. There we go. Ding, ding. We believe in sharing faith, we believe in family life, and we believe in meeting community needs. We believe in our compassion ministry that, that demonstrates something that's true in each one of our hearts, that we love people and we're willing to help them when they need a hand. All of this is a part of being the body of Jesus Christ that defines us. Well, if that's where your identity comes from, it means that there's not a lot of room for things like egotism and pridefulness and hate there's not a lot of room for, for looking down on people or discriminating against people because they're not like you. What there's room for is loving people and wanting to reach out and do for people and share with them the love of Jesus Christ. That defines your actions. It, it defines how you build your budgets. It defines how you plan your vacations. It defines um, um, what you watch on television, what you talk about and engage in in social media what you listen to on the radio, and the words that come out of your mouth. It defines you because that's who you are. Your identity is in Christ. So let's back up to what Paul was trying to say. What are you known for? So you ought to be known for who you represent. I gave an illustration in the first service. Let me see if I can make it work again. I want you to imagine for just a second that you had a supernatural ability, okay? It's a really neat one. You get to see things not everybody else sees. And here's one of the things you get to see. Standing behind you at all times for the next few months is going to be, no kidding, Jesus. He's going to stand right by. He's going to follow you around everywhere you go. He's just kind of right there, you know, except the shower. He's, you know, he's a gentleman. But, but everywhere you go, Jesus is following you. When you, when you have that discussion at work, when you're, when you're, when you're at the counter checking out, when you're, when you're flipping through the channels or what to watch, Jesus is right there. 
When, when you and this person are having a disagreement or when, when you're laughing about a joke, Jesus is right there, okay? So just imagine that for a minute. Would you act differently if you were aware he was there? Okay, make it a little more applicable because some of you are like, well, that's a really good churchy story. Imagine um, um, somebody that you deeply respect and admire was standing right behind you all the time for the next couple of weeks. They're always right there. Nobody else can see them, but you know they're there. Would your behavior be changed at all? What if you knew everybody else could see that person right behind you, this, this respected person, or could see Jesus behind you? Would that change your behavior? And what if you represented Jesus and all of your words and everything that you did said, this is what Jesus is like. And the way that you conducted yourself was absolutely true of Jesus and the message that you were teaching and that he was preaching. Do you see where there would be some problems of inconsistency? Do you understand that when Paul came into Corinth, what he was saying is this, what you see and hear and know in me, do likewise and Jesus will be with you. Anybody ready to say that? I mean, think about that. I'm going to behave exactly like Jesus so that my behavior is what you should imitate. I'm going to become a Bible that you can read. You feel that kind of pressure? You see, friends, this was the pressure of the apostle. And this is the pressure of that teacher when, when Paul was coming to Corinth, he was saying, I don't want to know anything about you. I don't want you to know anything about me other than Jesus. What we talk about, what we think about, how we behave is about Jesus. So Paul's going to model a humility and a lifestyle that points to Jesus. Let's take a look into this a little bit further. Um, as we were reading our scripture, as Gina read it earlier and we looked back on it, it said this, um, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God. The mystery of God. Hang on, just pause here for a second. The mystery of God is the gospel, all right? Gospel. Do you know why Paul calls it a mystery? Because you can't answer the question with human wisdom. Have you ever seen a magician do a great trick? I mean, she comes up there and she takes the cards and she does this thing and you go, what? How, how did she do that? Or, or he pulls a rabbit out of a hat. You're like, where'd that rabbit come from? That's a fat rabbit. There's no way you like had that. To, you, how did you? Or, or they make a building disappear or a plane disappear. Or they saw somebody in half and you're like, what? How'd they do that? How'd she know how to do And they, you yeah, fooled me, right? And it's a mystery how they did it most of the time, right? You just don't know. Anybody else like the Carbonaro effect? See how he pulls those little? It's, it's amazing. You're like, how did he just do that? He's a, a magician, has a TV show. Some of you are looking at me really blank. So mysteries are things that with human wisdom or your current wisdom and understanding, you can't answer. That's, it's a mystery. The gospel is a mystery. Now, it's the smell of life leading to life to those of us who are being saved, but it's the stench of death leading to death for those who are outside of, of Christ's family. So here's, here's how that looks. When we share the gospel with people. It is not human wisdom. It's the mystery of God. Human ration and reason cannot take the story of the gospel and see where it makes any sense. Let's listen to it from a sarcastic outsider's point of view. 
Okay, let me be biting for just a second. Not not how I really think, but let's think about it. So so here's the story. Uh, you got this carpenter, and he's he's got him a girlfriend. They're gonna get married, and so she uh, you know is a virgin birth all of a sudden. And so then you got this guy who's born. He's poor. He's a, basically under a Roman system. He's a he's a builder, a stonemason, carpenter himself. And then one day he he goes down and says, "Oh, who? Hey, I'm God." And and so then he 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 gets killed by the Romans and they throw him in a grave. Somebody pulls him out, hides the body, and now he's God. That's your story? You see how the cynical, smart-alecky way of thinking about Jesus has no answer for Jesus. They just demean him to the point of nobody. Here's the gospel, though. God, who created everything that is from the word of his mouth and the love of his heart, created mankind in his image, and he called it very good. And mankind turned their back on God and chose to do things their own way, defying and disrespecting and dishonoring and not loving their creator. But God, because he loves us so much, sent his son Jesus to become flesh, 100% God, 100% man. What? To live among us, to never sin. And, And he would give his life as a sacrifice to crush and break the curse of death, overcome death, so that by following him, we can overcome that too because we do it with him and in his wake. And in doing so, we're at peace with God because Jesus defeated death and came out of that grave on that third morning. And by placing your faith, trust, love, hope, eternal security in him, that love of God extends through Jesus to you. That's the story of the gospel. And so Christians go, amen, man. That's the gospel. I love it. But skeptic pagans go, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. You silly people. Your ideas are crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It's just a bunch of religious mumbo jumbo and, and, and you're psychotic, actually. You're some kind of a weird cult. What's the matter with you? To the fools and to the dying, it makes no sense. Um, I looked this up earlier between the services, and so I was going to pull it up here. Aristotle, um, uh, Aristotle. No, that's not what I meant to say. St. Augustine, yeah, that's close. Uh, St. Augustine uh, had a... Just give me a minute to get over my ignorance there. Um, a persistent tradition claims that upon being mocked by skeptics with regard to his doctrine of creation, St. Augustine was cynically asked, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine stoically turned to them and he said, creating hells for curious fools. <laughs> Love this guy. <laughs> 300, 400 AD, CE, however you like to say it, the Christian era. <laughs> so at 300 years into it, Augustine is already being mocked for his belief in Jesus Christ. Augustine. I mean, come on. Who can't respect Augustine? I mean, you mean in his day there were people who hated Jesus and hated the message of the gospel? Yeah. And they challenged him and Augustine in a moment of you know, great creative weakness, you know, (laughs) mocked them back. But here's the thing. If our lifestyles are constantly demonstrating that we've been transformed with renewed minds because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what people begin to see in us is the effect of the truth of that mystery. And you, in a sense, become a Bible that they're reading through your behavior and your actions. So that the truth of the gospel is making its way in. In Scripture, it says that the truth is on your lips and in your hearts. It is very near. Very near. It's right there. It just means that as a person, you have to reach out and grasp and believe and take hold of that and place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And suddenly those mysteries begin to make perfect sense. These ideas that we're people who are telling the truth, we're loving one another, we're, we're looking out for others' needs above our own, we're, we're patient, we have an inner joy, we have a peace. We're willing to suffer fools for the cost and the, and the cause of the gospel. That we're, we're willing to, to gather on Sundays and lift our voices in praise to give of our time, of our talent, and of our, our financial resources to do things that matter for kingdom value. That only makes sense because the mystery of the gospel is answered in our lives. You see? So let me, let me back up now to the main path. Paul is saying to the people, um, I came announcing the mystery of God to you. I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom like the sophists. I decided to know nothing about you, like your financial status and your, and your social status, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you, now listen, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Weakness, fear, and trembling. Why? Why is there fear and trembling and weakness? Check this out. In 50 AD, when Paul arrives in Corinth, do you know what physical condition this man was in? He had been stoned and whipped with a flagellum by Romans and Jews before coming to Corinth. Stoned and whipped with a flagellum, a cat of nine tails? He was shredded. The guy was in terrible shape. And he's coming to them in weakness. He's speaking in this word here, physical weakness. You betcha. He was having to heal. He was wrecked. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to have a whole crowd of people hurling rocks and stones at you until they figure you're dead and then leaving you for dead. What kind of physical shape would you be in? Weakness. So he didn't come looking like he's in his great clothes with his great haircut and everything showing up in town like the sophist saying, I have words of wisdom to be spectacular and dazzle you. And then you will love me and you will give me accolades and I won't have to spend a dime to stay here and I'll leave a wealthy man. That's not how Paul came. Paul came in weakness, wrecked. But the next two words are clutch. It says, he came in fear and much trembling. What's he fearing and trembling? Why would he say fear and trembling? Oh, because Paul is going to be drawing to mind the Old Testament imagery of how people come into the presence of God. Paul was thinking, just like we thought a little while ago, of Jesus standing right behind him, that Paul's every word, that his every action would represent Christ. That what he did would point to Jesus. And what people would know of Jesus is what they saw in him. And you know what that caused in him? Fear and trembling. Look at some passages uh, related to this from the Old and New Testament. From the Old Testament, we hear Psalms 114.7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Psalm 119. This is, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Isaiah 66. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Of fear, we hear Jesus say, Do not fear the ones who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Remember, uh, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
And then from Isaiah, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear, let, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. As Paul was writing, he used those words, he came in fear and much trembling. And later, as he was writing to the, the Philippians, the great book of Philippians, Paul said, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with Come on, church. Work it out with what? Okay, does that mean like, oh, it's God? No, it means you're constantly remembering how important it is that you represent Jesus well, that what you do represents Jesus. You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents his nation's interests in another, another nation. If you're a corporate ambassador or represent, you represent your company when you go to another company or another place. You represent them. The way you conduct yourself is what those people see as the official stand and behavior of your company or your nation, which is why ambassadors have to be held to a very high standard. Do you know what you are to Jesus? Say it again. I'm an ambassador. You see, the way you conduct yourself speaks to the world around you about who your Lord and your Savior is. You're responsible for that. The way we raise our children, the way that we conduct ourselves at work, on the road, during a ball game, Matt, the way, <laughs> I'm just playing, but the, the, way, the way we live out our lives speaks to the Jesus who's standing behind us. That's why Paul says, with fear and trembling. Not just my physical weakness, but my humility comes from the fact that I'm representing Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly the message that Paul's giving the Corinthians. So the two themes that we kind of looked through and explored during this passage today uh, was that what we are known for, what are we known for? We ought to be known for who you represent. And secondly, I mean, Bill says, listen, that's your identity is who you represent. He, not me, and then we. And then Paul models that humility is better than persuasive arguments, that God's power is demonstrated through submission. Last week, we also looked at a, at a book, a, a quote that had come from Dr. Janine Jong, and what she was, or Joanne Jong, so what she's saying was that we are suffering in the church from a sanctification gap. Sanctification means set aside for a specific purpose, Okay or set aside for a holy purpose. But we as the church of Jesus Christ have a bit of a gap in our lives. We're not really living like completely sold out Christian people. And one of the evidences is that our conversation, the conversations that we have amongst people over lunch, over dinner, in the workplace, around the water cooler, whatever you want to say, those conversations are not often turned to Jesus. Those conversations are trivial and pointless. As Christians, we need to be turning our conversations and what we think about, what we talk about, what we converse and ponder back to things that have holy, Christ-centered, eternal kingdom value. So as Paul is talking about humility, he's saying, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about the things that matter most. I want to know about you is Christ. That's what I want to know about you is Christ in you. How much are you in Christ? And what I want you to know about me is how much Christ is in me. That's the sanctification gap we want to overcome. 
And the point that I would make to you is something we heard at our men's conference yesterday, our men's breakfast here. As our speaker was talking, he was, he was uh, discussing these, these matters of evangelism and outreach. And one of the things he had talked about uh, during that time is that discipleship leads to evangelism. Now, how many of you grew up in a culture in a church where we had evangelism explosion or faith or one of the other things where you went and you knocked on doors or you confronted people with the four spiritual laws? Anybody else growing up in that kind of in that culture? No? There we again, Patty. Hi, Patty. Okay, so the Southerners are raising our hands and the Alaskans, awesome. Okay, so here's the thing, the Baptists, I think that's who's doing this right now. We kind of grew up in this culture of evangelism where we figured we got to go out and tell as many people as we possibly can about the gospel, get them feeling guilty and to make a decision and pray the prayer so they can go to heaven. And this idea came out of the great awakening that somehow we were responsible for getting people saved. That isn't in Scripture, though. That's a good manual for making a business work, but that isn't Scripture's model. Scripture says, as you go, make disciples. Go make disciples. Go be the church, go be the people who replicate the gospel in other folks, who teach other folks through relationships who Jesus is and what he's like. Discipleship results in evangelism. That's what will happen. If you're discipling one another, if you're discipling your kids, if you're in relationships with people, you earn the right to be heard. And when people hear that and they follow and they're being discipled, that's where evangelism happens. But here's what isn't going to work in today's culture. It didn't work in Paul's. You can't walk up to some stranger's door. Hi, if you died today, would your soul spend eternity in heaven or hell? They're going to go, well, I know where you can go. If you confront people with, if you died today, would, would God let you into heaven? How do you know? What would you tell God why he should let you into heaven? Most people in American culture today, and certainly in Corinthian culture, would respond like this. I don't know you. I don't know what you're about. You have no right to speak to me that way. And I don't believe in, in, a, in, in your God that makes me this uncomfortable. People are not going to hear that. You know why, though? Because our culture is a post-Christian culture. There was a day here in the United States where everybody was raised with a respect for God, a belief that there's a God, and it would only be an incredibly small minority that wouldn't have a regard for the God of the Bible and the teachings of Christianity. That is not the world we live in anymore. And it's not the world that Corinth was living in either. And so the model that Paul was teaching the people in Corinth, and that I would encourage you to hear today is this. Live like a transformed person. Love people. Earn the right to be heard with people. And when they have seen the truth of Jesus in you, and then they hear the truth of Jesus from your lips, that kind of authenticity will create another disciple who's going to hear the message and have an opportunity to be spiritually mature. That was Paul's model, and he did it with great humility, not persuading with great amazing words, not being super eloquent, not having the better argument, but living with authenticity. So, Two things we would close with today. We're going to take the words of the ancient scripture. We're going to put it kind of into American words today and and make it fit in our culture and go home with this thought. And worship team, by the way, be making their way up here as I'm doing this. I'm sorry. First one, it would sound like this. Church people, follow Paul's lead 
and imagine yourself the representative of Almighty God to your circles of influence. View yourself as fully responsible for every word and deed in the sense that you may be the only Bible people are reading. And then secondly, discipleship results in evangelism. Seldom does this happen the other way around. Effective gathering results in effective scattering. Let's be the people of Jesus authentically so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is authenticated in us.